0: The 19%. You got found that 19% of people would use the word feminist as an insult. We think the 19% are wrong. Feminism isn't an insult. It's a necessity and a movement to be proud of. And we're here to tell you why. From URN, this is episode two of the 19%. Labels. I'm Annie Lawrence. Before we begin, just a heads up about some trigger warnings for this episode. We'll be talking about sexual harassment, catcalling, rape, and consent. So, in this episode, we're talking about labels, and women are constantly labelled: sweetie, dear, love, darling, babe, bimbo, chick, wench, bird, slag, slut, hort, tart, tramp. I can't even begin to count the amount of times that a stranger has called me love or darling. And you might think that using words like dear or love is endearing, but listen to this clip of David Cameron telling MP Angela Eagle to calm down, dear.
1: I'm afraid because of a Conservative candidate, but he's now a GP. He says, hold on. Calm, calm down, dear, calm down, calm down. Listen, Listen to the doctor.
0: I don't know whether Cameron intended to patronise or not, but I do know that what he said doesn't sound great. And then there are those other labels. The definitely more degrading labels. Labels like slut or slag or whore. When a woman has multiple sexual partners, she's a slut. But when a man has multiple sexual partners, he's a lad. Quite different labels, right? And then there's a story from my friend, Millie. One cold, wintry evening, I went to Millie's flat. We were sat down in her lounge, a glass of wine and some cheesy program playing on TV. I sat on one of the sofas with Millie and her flatmate Zoe was sat opposite us. Her flat's really nice, by the way. They keep it super clean and they've hung up posters and fairy lights everywhere. Anyway, we began talking about this guy who had catcalled them the day before and I started to record our conversation. Millie and Zoe were walking to get chips after they'd been to the gym. Which is ironic, right? So anyway, they're walking down Radford Boulevard in Lenton, which is the main area where students live in Nottingham. Radford Boulevard is a busy road. It's a major route for buses and there's lots of shops and houses, lots of takeaway places. Here's what happened.
2: We were just walking down the road, no makeup on or anything. It was like, what, eight o'clock? I don't know. Yeah. And there's this, like, car parked. And I was just like, for God's sake, windows were down, and two guys sat in there. So we walked past, and then what was the first thing? Damn, baby. Damn, baby girl. (laughs) And then I was like, oh no, I just don't want to turn around. You just can't, like, you just can't turn around. Just carried on. He was like, you are a work of art. Like you're, oh my God, all this, and just kept talking as we were walking away. So we're we're in the takeaway. We're just waiting for the chips. And then another car pulled, the was the same, the same guy. guy. The same guy went down a side street, turned around his car, and then, like, parked the car in, like, the side street so he could see into Mario's takeaway and was, and was saying to us, like, I wasn't looking at him. Like, I had my back to him. And Zoe, like, signaled to me that he was there. And then he was like, don't be so shy. Like, come here and all this. And I was just like, I'm not, I just can't look at, I just can't, like, turn around. And he was just sat in his car and he waited there for literally at least like five minutes just sat in his car like calling us being like don't be shy don't be shy oh, and we come out come talk come me. talk to me baby and all this and we're like standing there just waiting for our chips and then like I was like how's oh, he gone like when we got our chips I was like really scared to go outside so I was like hope he's not there but like it happens every day like it's every day every on my walk day. to university what like 9am or oh, every time we walk to the gym we're just walking down that Radford Boulevard, and we'll get people like beat the horn whistle out their windows turn around in their cars pull up beside us like it happens all the time how does it make you feel like you do you feel like embarrassed about it or scared yeah like it's just really weird i think like i just don't know i'm just down i said i said i was saying to zoe i was like i don't know why they do it like what do they want from us like we're not exactly going be like, oh, hi. I'm just going to come sit in your car and spend time with you because you seem like such a nice guy. Like, why would I li- Like, why would I do And, then, like, do you remember when we got on the bus that time and there were these, like, this like, group of guys, like, sat at the front of the bus and we just walked up the stairs and sat down? Like, we were going out have dinner and some guy just, like, wolf whistled and was like, mm hmm, and, like, sucking on his teeth, you know, and they do that, like, weird, like, and you was just like, I just, like, sat on the bus and I was like, what? why did you do that? Like, what? I just think it makes you feel really like... Was this the the bus into town? Yeah, bus into town, like the the 28 or something like that. Yeah, the one that we get from right there. And it was probably like seven o'clock in the evening. And these boys aren't like, they're not like old men. They're not creepy people. Like, they're not, I don't, they're not like pedos in the street. But they're like, some of them are guys our age. And then some of them are just like, I would say, like, mid-twenties. Like, that's what those guys were yesterday, I would say. Mid-twenties just sat in yeah, their car. Yes,
3: yesterday is like, the most scared I've bit to, like, go back, like, go outside again. Because when we were in marriage, yeah. I was, we were very, like, apprehensive
2: to go back outside knowing that he was still out there. Mm. Not yeah. really that... It, I didn't really think he would do anything. He like, I don't... Yeah, I don't feel like he would get out of his car and, like, come after us. But it's just, like... I think it's really intimidating. It, it makes me feel like I don't want to walk back down that street. It makes me feel like I need to, like, cover up and not make myself yeah. look desirable in any way. Not that I felt desirable <laughs> in
1: any way. And sweating in the
2: gym for an hour. Exactly. But, like, it's almost like I... I wish I was, like, a man walking down the street, not a woman, Mm. if that makes sense.
0: Labels play into feminism and gender inequality more than we can imagine. They aren't simply words used to brand women as one thing and men as another. There's so much more to consider. Labels are part of the way we talk, the way we identify ourselves and identify each other. The story you're going to hear next is about not knowing how to label sex sex where enthusiastic consent was not given. This is Emily's story. Emily's now in her third year at university, but two years ago in her first year, she lived in Raleigh Park. Raleigh Park is university accommodation which isn't on the main campus, it's like a short bus journey away. Emily lived in a flat of six people, three boys and three girls. There are several blocks of flats, here's Emily trying to explain that to me.
1: Um, we were like the first block. There's, I think, I think there was like six blocks, six six flats in a block. You could only get to them if you had like, a buzzer and a key. But we always forgot to lock the door to our flat because everyone forgot their keys and like, oh, big, big B knock over here. We, you know people in the flat, so you trust them. And to get into the gate facility in the first place, you have to have like a scanner. So it's really hard for just randomers to get in. But it was nice. I liked it more for the people because there was a massive like load of us. I um, still talk to quite a few of them now. There was like about six, or seven flats. So we were just used to mingle, and they always, to be fair, they always used to mingle in our flat in the first place. So uh, yeah, we always had like a, you'd come into our living room and you'd be like, oh, about seven people who aren't don't live here. Hi, <laughs> right? Especially on nights out, they'd like always come back to ours and then like off. When everyone was just like rolling back in from town you'd always find people at ours so people would usually come to see if anyone was there before going back to their own flats. So it was quite um, a busy flat even though there was just six people in it.
0: So you've got the picture. The flat is a bit like this hub where it's quite normal for people to walk in and out of. It wasn't weird to go there after a night out even when you didn't live there. So there are two main people in this story. One of them is Emily, and the other one is this guy.
1: I knew him because um, my friend, she was a nurse. He kind of was in a flat where he didn't know anyone. So he migrated and made friends with her flat. So whenever I'd go on a night out with her flat, or I'd go around to hers, he'd usually be there. So it was through a mutual friend that I got to know him. I'd come out of a relationship. So meeting him wasn't a, oh, I'm going to fight. My next true love, it was like, oh, you are you seem like a nice guy, we get on. But I wasn't in a position where I was like, yeah, I want to take this further. But I was in a vulnerable position where I was like, attention is quite nice, because I, I felt like it was a quite bad breakup. So meeting someone that actually gave you the time of day made you feel quite nice. It started in April
0: in her first year, so it's coming up to two years ago now. It was casual and it carried on for a couple months until this one night. She thinks on this particular night she went to Crisis, a super popular student club night in Nottingham, but she's not completely sure. Remember, this happened nearly two years ago. Emily and her friends do the normal clubbing type things. They drink and they dance, they queue forever for the toilets, they get another drink, and then they go back to the dance floor. And at some point, they make the decision to go home.
1: Yeah, I think we all did as a group. I think I've only ever gone home from a club on my own, like without friends about once, and then I got yelled at by my housemates for doing it. So we always make sure we go home. We are quite good with that, Um, especially if one of us wants to go home, we all tend to go home in a group. So um, I think we all went home together because we were all quite gone. It was definitely a pass out sleep, which doesn't really happen very often, which is why I always remember that night as me being like, extra super drunk, because I'd like proper passed out in my bed so I remember I was passed out in my bed and then I remember being woken up by someone it was the guy she'd been casually seeing this guy had come back I heard nothing about it It had come into our flat obviously it's unlocked and attempted to find me by going into my housemates rooms in search for me I don't know (laughs) it sounds like I should be flattered but I definitely wasn't came into my room woke me up which I remember but I definitely was 100% not in either full consciousness or knew what I was doing. And then left, I remember him saying, oh, my, my mate's from home around, so I've got to go. I, mean, no, I, remember, I remember that it happened. Do you know what I mean? Like, I remember thinking, oh, I definitely had sex last night. But I don't really remember anything else about it. The, the big worry for me was because... Um, I'm on the pill, and so the problem was for me is because I've been quite lax with it, I couldn't remember the ending, and so I had to end up messaging my the girl that I knew, who knew him, and asking, just to subtly ask him how it did end, to know if I needed to take an extra precaution or not. I
0: asked her how she felt when she woke up in the morning and realised what had happened.
1: Like, ugh. I think that's uh, that's the way to describe it. I was just like, ugh, What? I think especially because I was in such a... It made me feel that I'd given off the impression that I was just someone there for him to pick up and drop. He was like, oh, you know what? I fancy doing it. She's there. Passed out. She's, yeah. (laughs) She's there. Uh, probably he thought, oh, even though she's passed out, she's probably still up for it. She won't care. It just made me feel like, oh, did I mean that, like, little? Even though, even as a friendship-wise, it's a bit like, oh. And then the fact, like, oh, yeah, thanks for that, I'm leaving now. It's like, oh, cheers, mate. See you in a bit. Basically, it got brought up into conversation, as stuff does because, you know, you're at uni and you're like, oh, kissing, and kiss, Um, and we were in, we must have been in our living room, and then we were having a conversation about it, and then I I mentioned, I was like, oh, I felt like, it sounds awful, it does sound like I said it flippantly, I didn't say it flippantly, I was like, oh, I felt like it was a bit like of a rape, I felt really, like, used, and then one of the lads who I knew went, you can't accuse someone of doing that, that's a really strong thing to accuse someone of, never say that again, that's just really off you know that's way off the mark and I was like oh yeah and I think he said like oh you know him so it's obviously not and like in my head I was like making the excuses of why it wasn't I was like well yeah I do know him we had done it before so it can't have been because maybe if I was sober I would have been up for it but um, yeah it put that doubt in my mind and then everyone kind of like pushed it under and was like oh yeah it's something that happened but for me I was always just sat there thinking like gross and when you look back at something and something pops out into your mind whenever you think oh when do you feel taken advantage of it's always that point because i always like to think i'm quite strong and i like making my own opinions and i'm definitely not a victim in any sense so i think when people start putting that label onto stuff that happens it makes me feel like oh i was weak so it happened and that's not really how i should be thinking about it it was like he was stupid so it happened it wasn't i let it happen so it happened I think it took me a while to realise because I was thinking, oh, you know, it happened. It was horrible. I felt crappy about it. I feel gross. I feel used. It was my fault because I should have locked the door. I should have told him no. I should have not drank as much so it wouldn't have happened. But really, it should have been him going, you know what? She's clearly not in fully consciousness let's not or even oh i haven't even texted her and asked her if she wants to even if i was sober it'd be a bit weird if someone (laughs) and the effort that he went into to like go into other housemates rooms is a bit like do you really want it that much is it really that important it was definitely a consent issue and it was definitely a violation of like trust as well i think obviously these all come out under the umbrella of rape was like all the elements to it but I think it was just it made made me think, oh, did I give off that impression that I'm just that easy? Do you know what I mean? And obviously I shouldn't think, oh, it's it's me who gave off that impression. But that they are like thoughts that came into my head was, did I give off that impression I was that easy, or is that what you thought that this was? And then it made me feel stupid because I was always I just wanted I was like, oh, he well, did want attention.
0: I don't know about you, but hearing Emily speak there, I really get the feeling that she's super conflicted about how to label this incident. And I can see what questions she's struggling with. Was it okay because the flat was unlocked? Because the flat was a place where people gathered after a night out, because they'd hooked up before, because she got quite drunk, and so on.
1: I felt like you thought, I can pick you up and drop you. you you've you consented to it once, so you can consent to it all the time. But yeah, I, I think that women are, Kind of trying to think oh you want attention so you were given the attention by this happening to you and so, no 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 it's not it's definitely not the same thing no one told me you're wrong for thinking that no one told me it no one specifically said it was your fault that's the thing like no one said it was your fault no one said you deserved it no one said oh well obviously it was going to happen to you because you wanted attention in my head they were the things that came automatically do you know what i mean the only thing comment was made was like oh you can't label it as that
0: Emily said to me that she'd never really spoken about it before because it always seemed like something private and secret. Emily's really happy now. She's been in a relationship for a year and a half and this incident isn't something that she thinks about every day or that she thinks has affected her in the long term. But she's also told me that it's something she needs to speak about. I'm not gonna sit here and try and label what happened if Emily can't. You might have your own ideas about how to label it, and you might not. But by definition, non-consensual sex is rape. When I say the word rape, I think of a dark alleyway and a faceless stranger looming out of the darkness. But rape mostly doesn't happen that way. The word sounds strong. Just look at the reaction of Emily's housemates when she brought it up in conversation. But just because it's a strong word, does that mean that we shouldn't use it as a label? This next story is a bit different. It's about first year university student, David Sherratt. I first heard about David through an article that The Tab wrote about him. In case you didn't know, The Tab is an online paper written by university students. It's nationwide and they publish a huge range of stories. Recent headlines have included how many girls are you WhatsApping at the moment and an article about how gluten-free diets are killing the wheat industry. Anyway, the tab published an article about David. It was called Meet the Anti-Feminist Who Doesn't Ever Plan to Have a Girlfriend, which is a provocative headline if ever I've heard one. In the article, the tab reports David as saying that, quote, consent classes are very very worrying that quote going out and having one night stands is too risky girls could falsely accuse you of rape and that he also moved flats at university because his flatmates were feminists after i'd read the article i really wanted to talk to david and to be honest i'm not entirely sure why he's a self-described anti-feminist who makes anti-feminist youtube videos For someone who makes a feminist podcast, I knew that we would never exactly see eye to eye. But anyway, I asked him if he'd be willing to talk to me and he said he would. I was really nervous. Before I sat down to talk to him on Skype, I'd compiled five pages worth of statistics, questions and arguments. It felt as if I was preparing myself for a battle. (laughs) But I didn't really need them. I thought David would be hateful, argumentative, or even abusive, but he was really none of those things. We had a really, really long conversation, and when it was over, I felt like we had some kind of weird regard for each other. I don't agree with what he was saying by a long, long way, but to me, it was interesting how the label of anti-feminism gave me preconceptions about who he was and how he'd act towards me. Anyway, I wanted to play you some of our conversation. We started with the tab article. I read in the tab article um, that you had to move flats because your flatmates were feminists. Um,
4: it wasn't specifically. It wasn't because they were feminists. Mm-hmm. It was because um, it was because of their actions. Basically, what happened was I um, I, I I told them all look, I do kind of controversial videos online. I'm, You're probably not going to like them. So I'm just warning you. And they decided to go against my warnings um, and binge watch them. So they must have watched hours of my videos. Didn't tell me. Mm-hmm. Said nothing. Um, and then, like, several days... Uh, and then for several days, they were just um they were just really quiet they didn't want to talk to me um i knew something was wrong and that's weird because i don't tend to pick up on stuff like that and then then they invited me into the the front room um with the kitchen and stuff there was all four of my flatmates and an extra 3 or 4 people that i'd never met i didn't know they they were friends of the the other flatmates and they all had a go at me for my videos. The thing was was that uh the video that they were most offended by was a video I um I did called feminism is terrorism. And yes, that's probably going to ruffle some feathers. I wasn't surprised by that. What they what they took from it was if I call myself a feminist, you would call me a terrorist, which was kind of the opposite, and that's putting completely putting the cart before the horse. So when I'm ganged up by a lot of people, it's it's hard to tell like exactly completely exactly what's going on. It, it wasn't a great experience for me.
0: By the way, I went and watched David's video, "Feminism is Terrorism," after we spoke. The video basically breaks down the prerequisites for terrorism, which he says are fear, destruction of property, violence and intimidation. And then he uses examples of newspaper headlines, feminist YouTubers and news clips to illustrate that feminism exhibits those behaviours.
4: Feminists tend to use intimidation uh, intimidation tactics on their political targets and and, and their enemies. So basically they decided to intimidate me to tell me the feminists don't intimidate people.
0: After his flatmates staged this intervention, David requested to move flats. It took quite a while. In the time between intervention and moving flats, he tried to keep out of their way. The only time he really interacted with them was when one of them opened the door to hand him a letter. Other than that, he stayed in his room and kept his distance. You might be thinking it was because he felt too awkward. That's certainly what I thought. But David says that that wasn't exactly the case.
4: I didn't want to speak to them. I didn't want to be in a room with them because um, really I didn't want to be accused of doing anything.
0: When you say anything, what do you mean?
4: Well, accusations of harassment and things are very common tactics for, that are used to silence people and used to get at people who aren't politically popular.
3: So you, you,
0: you were worried that they'd accuse you of harassment?
4: Yeah, harassment or even, or even sexual harassment or something like that, I don't know. Because I, I know of other people who have been in similar positions to me and that has happened to them.
3: We
0: then started to talk about an organisation called Men Going Their Own Way, which David is part of. In the article that The Tab wrote on David, It was labelled as a secretive club, but I'm not so sure about it being secretive. I googled it and it was the first result that came up. Anyway, men going their own way, David calls it MGTOW for short, looks like a website that the dark ages would have dreamed up. I don't really know where to begin describing what MGTOW is, but from a glance at the FAQ section, you start to get an idea. In it, they have comments like, quote, why have a wife when he can have a life? Marriage is for gays. In a question which says, my girlfriend is pregnant, what do I do? They respond with a comment which encourages men to cause a miscarriage. And finally, at the bottom of the FAQ section, they say, quote, that feminism is the biggest cultural failure of the last century. That's what happens when you let women vote on anything other than American Idol. And here's the best part, we had nothing to do with it. Feminism is a failure all by itself. Yeah, I know. I've seen on the MGTOW website that, like, they're really against men getting married Um, yeah exactly and i and i've seen as well in um a couple of the articles about you that you said that you can't see yourself as having a girlfriend
4: that's not true i don't see anything happening in the in the future in like the near future or anything but that was a basically just that that, that's just exaggerations in Mm -hmm. the um in the media because Mm -hmm. The uh, writer for the tab was uh, quite dishonest.
0: Okay, that took me by surprise a bit. After reading the MGTOW website, I had labeled him as thinking and being exactly as the website described the MGTOW man to be. So next, I read a quote directly from the MGTOW website out to David. The quote I read out to him said, quote, girlfriend is just a silly female. He thinks an unmarried man should be interested in not banging other chicks and paying for everything. And again, his response took me by surprise. <laughs>
4: <laughs> um, yeah, this is um, one of the, the problems I do actually have with a lot of the MGTOW community is they can be a bit... Uh, there is actual sort of um, prejudice against women within the uh, within certain circles. So I don't actually... I don't read anything from the MGTOW website. I don't associate with too many... Mixed um, out channels, so it, <laughs> they might—they—they um, they very well. There's probably loads of them who actually do believe that, but then a lot of the a lot of the men who end up behaving like that are the ones who have been in sort of abusive relationships or have come out of a, a really bad divorce. I make a very big point to distance myself from it.
0: It's interesting because when when I read that to you, I don't know. The tone of your voice was almost like slightly embarrassed by that quote.
4: I I just I I'm embarrassed for them basically.
0: In in what way?
4: I I really wish that the MGTOW community wasn't taken over by the the very loud voiced bigots, and there are a lot of just reasonable calm and very otherwise egalitarian people who are MGTOW and who would consider and would wouldn't sound like that at all. I think they aren't necessarily representative.
0: So while David does label himself as MGTOW, it's a label which has a lot of different shades to it. It's a label shaped by personal experiences, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but there is definitely a parallel to feminism there. Ideas about feminism are shaped by personal experiences, just as labelling yourself a MGTOW is. Our conversation moved on to catcalling, and I think you can hear my patience waning slightly in this next bit. I
4: think as I, th- I think as a generation, we've become we, we've become a little bit mollycoddled, and we've become a, a little too sensitive about what people say.
0: I I don't I don't feel like someone. Telling me what I look like, someone telling me what kind of sexual act to perform on them, um, and getting offended by that is being mollycoddled. Like well, there's, I think that's there's the a harassment. very big difference.
4: No, there's a very big difference between someone, um, someone threatening to do something to you, and someone saying um, hello on the street, or um, or you look nice, or something like that.
0: I think I think you can have interactions with people that. Don't cause offence. That can happen. I'm perfectly open to that. Um, what I'm not open to is, I don't know, people people proposing sex to me or a different sexual act. I I, I find that I find that um, pretty degrading, really.
4: Hmm. Well, I, again, it's th- this. I uh, yeah. Maybe it's, here's the thing, it's, it's not a nice thing to say to someone, but then I don't necessarily think um, trying to, I don't know, criminalise it is the best idea.
0: Honestly, we spoke for ages and it felt like we could have kept talking about David's label of an anti-feminist and being labelled MGTOW, about my label of a feminist. We're in this kind of weird position, where I knew that I couldn't change his mind and he knew that he couldn't change mine. But we kept debating anyway. Maybe it was because I was so nervous about talking to him beforehand, but after we'd finished up the call, I felt like we'd managed to have an interesting and even thoughtful conversation in spite of our completely opposing labels. This last story is about labels in so many different ways. Feminism as a label, gender labels,
3: no labels. Here's Rachel. My mum calls herself a feminist. She's definitely a feminist. She's the one that got me into feminism, but she's definitely a second waiver. So people like Jermaine Greer, her kind of generation of feminists, she was at Manchester in the 80s, things like that. That's her breed of feminism. So um, when... We started talking more about feminism, I got more involved in it, and more involved in kind of fourth wave, or third wave, fourth wave kind of transition period feminism. Just to quickly sum it up for you,
0: in case you're not sure, there are four waves of feminism, sort of. Some people think that there are three, or some even say that the number is far higher than four, and that's an issue which can definitely be debated. Let's just say for now there are four waves, four phases of feminism, which I'm going to quickly break down for you in really simple terms because I think it will help to understand Rachel's story. So bear with me for just a moment. The first wave was about women's right to vote, women's ability to work, and was about empowering women to control their own bodies through contraception. In the UK, we know this wave mainly through the suffragettes movement. This was the Marie Stopes era. The second wave started in the 60s and was about expanding the role of the traditional mother and wife to, well, pretty much everything else. This wave was also where equal pay comes into play in the law. And then it gets a bit more abstract. The third wave of feminism isn't really so much about politics, but was more along the lines of expanding and questioning notions of gender and gender roles. It Thinks about gender and sexuality as a more fluid and less binary thing. And then there's fourth wave, and to be honest, I find it kind of hard to distinguish between third and fourth wave feminism because I think the fourth wave is still quite new. You'll notice in her story that Rachel uses the term third slash fourth wave feminism and maybe it's best to think about it that way for now. So Rachel's mum is second wave feminist and
3: Rachel is third slash fourth wave. Back to Rachel. I had criticisms of her feminism and we found out that we had very different definitions of what a woman was. So uh, this would be, I suppose the label would be what is being a woman and is it anything to do with actually what's in your pants because it's not but she thinks it is and we've had quite a lot of conversations about that. I think it was um, my first year of uni I had started looking way more into feminism. I had been a kind of a low-key feminist for a long time, that was just the nature of my relationship with my mum, where I kind of took on quite a lot of her political and social and ideological ideals, I suppose, um, because I agreed with them, not because she forced them upon me, but just they made sense to me. And it was the first time that I had ever kind of gone beyond that and had read into things, and it was the internet that brought me to feminism in the current state that it is now because I was open to so many more resources than my mum. Feminism was just about women's liberation back then and my mum still had quite a lot of um, ideas about feminism in that strain. So um, having conversations about gender became quite difficult because my mum had taught me all I knew about feminism up to that point and it was a bit of an interesting moment where it was a mother and a daughter talking about something that they both cared about very deeply except one had like gone past the other and was criticising something that they had been taught already, which was quite difficult for both of us.
0: Rachel remembers coming home at Christmas after her first term at university and having a conversation with her mum which got very tense very quickly.
3: It's kind of a memory of a series of conversations where um, we'd be talking about feminism in general and it was kind of the elephant in the room. So uh, we'd kind of get onto something that was more about gender rather than women's liberation parts of feminism. And we'd both get a bit tense because we both knew that there was something we really disagreed on very close by. And then we'd usually just kind of move away from the conversation. It actually happened quite a lot when um, I started to reject someone who I had introduced her to. So um, I had read How to Be a Woman by Catelyn Moran and then um, decided after reading a bit more about her work and criticizing it a bit more and critiquing it that she was not a very good feminist, that she was trans exclusionary, that she was a bit racist, that she had some pretty toxic ideas about um, ableism and transphobia that I really wasn't on board with. And I thought that she was no longer a feminist icon to me. And this conversation between me and my mum got a bit tense because she was like, this isn't solidarity. If you're criticising another woman's work in feminism, I was like, well, actually, I think I'm allowed to critique someone. There's no point in being in an ideological movement, which is a dogma, if you just say, oh, this is fine, we can't critique everything. That's not what feminism is to me. It's about a movement which is a huge umbrella in which we don't let people say things that which are harmful to others within the umbrella. We criticise that and we try and make a better feminism, which is why there have been waves of it. It's not like that came out of nowhere. It was a development and movement on from other ideas.
0: And then finally, after all this tension has built up about the label of feminism and how to label gender, it finally culminated when they went to Paris. They went together, along with Rachel's
3: aunt and her aunt's boyfriend so it was uh easter of second year that we went to paris because what were you doing in paris i i'm a bit of a david bowie obsessive person like i'm a david bowie fan basically ground control to major tongue take your protein and uh, we'd missed the David Bowie exhibition in London so she promised me when it came to somewhere that was kind of close we'd go together and it happened to be in Paris so we took a weekend out and we went to Paris and it was very nice and we went to see the David Bowie exhibition which was quite a good point to bring it up because we were talking about David Bowie's androgyny how um David Bowie wasn't really here or there on the masculine-feminine spectrum. He just kind of, like, went everywhere and then did everything in, like, a period where that was not heard of. And he kind of paved the way for androgyny in general and kind of experimentations with femininity in males and men. And it was really cool. I was there with my auntie and her then, like, her boyfriend, but they were kind of... I made sure we were walking slightly behind them just so they didn't have to be involved. We were walking along the Seine. We'd just been to Notre Dame, and I had bored her with my knowledge of flying buttresses. <laughs> so she was already in a bit of a bad mood, probably. But we were all walking along the Seine. We were looking for a cafe to. Um, go into to just get some lunch and i'm really picky so we were all getting a bit tense and i was like you know what i'm feeling for a fight let's well, it wasn't even a fight me and my mom don't have fights so we have discussions we're just we've lived together for like 18 years at that point and um literally just the two of us my mom divorced my dad when i was five so it was just the two of us so our fights are pretty intense they are really intense. So they will just be us talking very quickly at each other. And um, I was like, you know, what? I just want to get this done. I'm a bit tired of disagreeing with you on this. And I want to try and convince you because I think you're a very good person. She's a massive lefty. She's a feminist. She's all of these things. And like, I think you actually have a misunderstanding about this. And I know you don't want to be told that you're wrong by your daughter. who You've taught lots of things, but I think it's time you take me seriously and listen to this. So. Um, we started off where i was just like why do you think that trans women aren't women because that was the kind of the most toxic part of what she thought it wasn't so much that she wanted to marginalize them she just thought they weren't real women and i was like well what do you think being a real woman is what how, like why do you get to be the one who says what a real woman is and she was like "Well." What about experiences that only women have? And I was like, w- what? What's an experience that only a woman will have? And she's like, well, childbirth. And I was like, what about women who can't conceive? What about women who have several miscarriages? Does that mean that's not uh, an experience that... Does that mean because that- they don't have that experience, they aren't women anymore? She's like, w- w- what about periods? And I was like, well, some women don't get periods. People are intersex as well. You know, there's a huge spectrum of sex And if you're putting biology into it then you're already kind of wrong because even you know she's a kind of a linguist basically she does lots of languages you know that like sex and gender don't mean the same thing they're very different and if you use a socio biological to use the precise word way of looking at things then you've already kind of taken away the nuances of our cultures and our languages and gender is a performance. It's not got anything to do with the way your body works. And that was basically her only real argument. What we needed to do was just sit down and have that conversation. And I think it was difficult because explaining what I thought a woman was was quite difficult, actually. I didn't even have, like, the vocabulary to explain it. I was only, like, 18 at that point. And I was just like, oh, God, what actually is a woman? And it was just... The state of femininity is not something that is natural at all, it's a performance that has been cultured and gendered and driven into us every aspect of our lives, so any kind of movement through the world, I make a movement as a woman, because that's the way that I've been cultured and I've been gendered that way. It's not like inherently natural that I feel this way, it's just the way that I feel. I don't think any person has any right to tell people what gender they are because gender isn't solid. It's like completely fluid. It's crazy and it's exciting and it's to be experimented with. And yeah, I hope that my mum now understands a bit more where I'm coming from when we talk about what being a woman is. So not only do I think that she now understands what I think being a woman is, but I also think that she understands that having that label is not that necessary. So. I call myself a woman, but it doesn't mean that I see myself as explicitly feminine all the time. I just kind of float along doing what I want to do.
0: When I think about labels, I think about this module I've been taking as part of my degree. I study history and ancient history. This module that I've been doing is called Sex and Society and we've spent a lot of time talking about gender and labels. It's thrown up all these questions for me about if we can label gender and sexuality. I mean we try to because we as a society like to understand things through labels and put things into neat little boxes. But those neat little boxes might not necessarily be the best way to think about things. Thinking about all the stories we've had on this episode of The 19%, we use labels to tell us about something, to give us a summary, to identify something or someone. But all the components of these somethings and someones, all the substance gets lost when you label something. And sometimes that's not a problem, because labelling something is a quick way of identifying it. But I do think that we need to bear in mind that labels may not be the full picture. There's often much more to an identity, to an incident, than how we label it. The 19% is created and hosted by Anya Lawrence. This episode was produced and edited by Harry Bowflower and me. Additional production help from Lucy Bickley, Hannah Alderton, Rachel Hoskins, Caitlin Spence, Isabel Sheen, Isabella Millington and James Goodison. We now have our own Twitter and Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter at the 19%, the 19 is in number form, and find our Facebook page at www.facebook.com 19%. If you want to get in contact with us to tell us your stories, you can email speech at urn1350.net.